Well, as you take a seat this morning, I'm going to need three things from you, okay? Three things. Okay, the very first thing is I need you to close your eyes. I probably should have done these in a different order. I need you to close your eyes. I need you to turn on your imagination. And I need you to just trust me and go with me, okay? So, even if you're watching online, close your eyes, turn on your imagination, and trust me. I want you to imagine your world is dark, safe, and secure. You're bathed in a warm, cushioning liquid. You do nothing for yourself. You are fed automatically, and a murmuring heartbeat assures you that someone larger than you is meeting all of your needs. Life consists of simply waiting. You're not sure what to wait for, but any change seems far away and scary. You encounter no sharp objects, no pain, no dangers. It's a fine, serene existence. Ah. One day, though, you feel a tug. The walls seem to press in. Those soft, padded walls are now pulsing wildly, crushing you downward. Your body is bent double, your limbs twisted and wrenched. You're falling upside down. For the first time in your life, you feel pain. You're in a sea of rolling matter. There is more pressure, almost too intense to bear. Your head is squeezed flat, and you are pushed harder and harder into a dark tunnel. Oh, the pain, the noise, more pressure. You hurt all over. You hear a groaning sound, and an awful sudden fear rushes into you. It's happening. Your world is collapsing. You're sure it's the end. You see a piercing, blinking light. Cold hands grasp you, pull you from the tunnel, and hold you upside down. A painful slap. Congratulations. You've just been born. Okay, you can open your eyes. Now, some of you had uh, some good intuition. You kind of guessed where I was going uh, earlier. But, but when Philip Yancey shared that description in his book, Where is God When It Hurts? He was reminding us that sometimes we're in an experience that we will one day view very differently. And some of you can relate. Some of you have been in a season of stress or anxiety, a crisis, something that in the moment you said, what is this? I don't like it. I don't get it. I I would appreciate it ending. Give me anything else. But you get down the road and you begin to perceive it through very different eyes. You begin to see it radically differently. And that is a summary, in some ways, of the journey we've been on for the last few weeks through the book of Ecclesiastes. Solomon is at the end of his life, in his 60s, just a few short years he doesn't know before his death, reflecting back on his life with us with different glasses than he had in the moment. And because he doesn't have that long to live, he's sharing with us a long time later, and his original audience, wisdom that he hopes will save them the heartbreak and will give them the perspective that he didn't have in the moment. And so today, I'm going to share with you from Ecclesiastes chapter 7, a simple idea. If we could pull the lights up a little bit, I would love people to be able to take notes with their hand out here. And the big idea is this, 
that wisdom shows us a good path, but Jesus shows us the way home. Wisdom shows us a good path, but Jesus shows us the way home. I'm sorry. Could be let's back to back to full. I'm sorry. It was good for the moment, but now I can't see faces, and I want to be able to make sure everybody's awake when I'm preaching. Um, so wisdom shows us a good path. Jesus shows us the way home. If you have a Bible, I'd encourage you to open up to Ecclesiastes chapter seven this morning. We're we're kind of crossing the midway point in the book of Ecclesiastes. And in Ecclesiastes chapter 7, Solomon is going to change his tone. If you're unfamiliar with the Bible, turn to the middle. You hit Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. And in, in Ecclesiastes 7, not only do we cross over the midway point in the book, but, but Solomon, in a lot of ways, he changes his tone. It's, it's almost like a radical left turn. If you were with us last week or the last couple weeks, you go, man, this kind of seems out of nowhere. And, and there's a reason for that, and we'll get into that in a little bit. But today, Solomon is going to share with us a little bit of his journey changing perspective and in some ways coming back home. I've said here that I believe these are three steps that Solomon takes on his way home. You know, home is a, a, it's a large and complex topic. I mean, you just even hear the words of coming home and it evokes all sorts of emotions. Because home isn't just a building. It's a sense of place. It's a sense of people. It's relationship. And for as many people as in this room and watching online, there are that many experiences of home. But in the scriptures, the idea of coming home is the idea of coming to and connecting with God. Of finding a sense of peace and rest and fulfillment. And Solomon is going to take some steps today that shows us his way to come home. And the first step is this. He's going to show us that wisdom, in fact, shows us a better way to live. The reason why he's so passionate about wisdom in his writings in Ecclesiastes and his previous writings, Proverbs, is he thinks wisdom actually shows us a better way to live. And he's going to explore this in Ecclesiastes 7. And if you have a Bible, I want to encourage you to do something. If you've got a pen or a highlighter, in this section I'm about to read, if you see the word better, would you just circle it? Some of you are like, I'm allowed to write in my Bible? Yes, it's your Bible. You can write in it. (laughs) Mine is covered today because I've been in Ecclesiastes all summer. So as we go through Ecclesiastes 7 and you see the word better, circle it. I've I've highlighted it so you'll kind of be able to pick up on it. Beginning in verse 1, this is what we read. A good name is better, that's your first cue, than precious ointment, and the day of death than the day of birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter for by sadness of face, the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of the fools is in the house of mirth. Mirth was a a, a very expensive uh, spice or ointment. It was a sign of wealth. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the songs of fools. Solomon says, for as the crackling of thorns under a pot, you know, the kindling that's burning, so is the laughter of the fools. This also is vanity. He says, surely oppression drives the wise into madness and a bribe corrupts the heart. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning. And the patient in in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. 
Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, Solomon says, for anger lodges in the hearts of fools. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not for wisdom that you ask this. What Solomon is doing here is he's making a shift, as I said, from where we've been to where we now are. When the book of Ecclesiastes begins, it's, it's what some of our people who've spoken in the series call under the sun misery. It's kind of all of Solomon's groans and complains about his frustrations in life under the sun, you know, the sun in the sky. And he's talked all about his frustration and his cynicism at, at life and wealth and relationships and power. And in this chapter, he's shifting from under the sun misery to above the sun wisdom. He's pulling back and rising above, and he's, he's trying to give us a larger perspective, one that actually takes in con- into consideration the experience and the wisdom he's discovered. And I love how Chuck Swindoll defines wisdom. He says, wisdom is the God-given ability to see life with rare objectivity and to handle life with rare stability. The reason that, that that quote speaks to me is so often am I not objective and so often am I not stable. I told somebody once when they asked about why I married my wife, I said, well, I'm kind of like that rolling storm, you know, that's just like this all the time. And she's just kind of like this even and kind of brings me back to center. I dated somebody in college that was like this. And I felt like being in the middle of a hurricane all the time because one of us was up and one of us was down and it was just chaos. And what Swindoll is saying is that when we get wisdom, what we get is we get the ability from God to see life with rare objectivity. And we get the ability to handle life with rare stability. And he explores this, Solomon does, through some comparisons that on the surface, I'm sure as you were reading them going, Scott, this makes no sense. Let me explain a couple of these to you, some of these comparisons. He says, a good name is better than a good aroma. Now, I I think all of us are agreed that a bad aroma is bad. You know, if you had a bad aroma, that might be why there's seats in between you and people around you today, you know. But, But what he's saying here is, hey, in the day of Solomon, if you had a good aroma, that was a good thing. He said, but what's even better than the aroma that you leave when you walk away is the name you have. It's one thing if when you walk away, people go, man, that guy smells good. But what if they also go, yeah, but he's a total jerk. What happens if when you leave, not only do you leave an aroma, but you leave a reputation? And in the Hebrew language, the word name and the word ointment in your text are one letter apart. He's playing a little plan worse to say some of you are so caught up in your appearance, in your aroma, that you're forgetting the, the deeper things. He continues, he says, the date of your death is better than the date of your birth. And you go, Scott, that's kind of weird because we celebrate birthdays. How many of you celebrate death days? No. What, what, what is he saying? Well, the reason why Solomon is saying the date of your death is better than the date of your birth, because the date of your birth is about the potential you have, while the date of your death is about the fulfillment you've experienced. When you hold a baby for the first time, you go, oh my gosh, this child is filled with so much potential. How tragic to be standing over a casket and still be talking about potential. Someone once said that the most expensive real estate in the world is not in Manhattan or Dubai or Beijing or Hong Kong. It's in graveyards because of all of the unused potential. 
Solomon continues. He says, going to a funeral is better than going to a party. Again, you're like, Scott, this is some weird wisdom here. If you're at home and Facebook pings you with two event requests, and one of them is a funeral and one of them is a party, or you come home one night and talk to your spouse and says, hey, I got invited to a funeral. Hey, I got invited to a party. I have a guess which one you're going to pick. But there's a reason why Solomon says going to a funeral is going to, better than going to a party. And I'll just speak as a pastor here. People listen at funerals. They don't listen at weddings. I spend a lot more time on what I say at funerals than what I say at weddings. Because honestly, at a funeral, it doesn't matter what people believe about God. They listen. At a wedding, the couple is just staring googly-eyed at each other. They're not going to hear anything I say. And all the attendees just want to go eat and drink, when, and they wait for me to be done. But you walk away from a funeral sobered, with perspective. Solomon says, sorrow is better than laughter. Again, he, he's not anti-joy. Remember last week, he said that we are to find joy in our work and in our life and in the money that God gives us. No, what he's saying is that sorrow sometimes can bring us back to a sense of perspective and sometimes laughter leads us off course. It reminds me of, of what he also wrote or his father wrote in Psalms where we read, so teach us God to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. So many of us forget that our life is limited. It's fleeting. It won't be here forever. And so sorrow can bring us back to that awareness. Solomon says the rebuke of the wise is better than the songs of fools. What he's saying is it's not actually a bad thing if you, somebody you like and somebody you trust tells you something hard. I know we live in a world where everybody who criticizes you is marked a hater, but not everybody who tells you something you don't like is a hater. Sometimes they could be your best friend. Some of the best words I've ever heard hurt the most because I had a blind spot and somebody loved me enough to tell me. Solomon in Proverbs says, Better is open rebuke than hidden love. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, and profuse are the kisses of an enemy. He's saying, hey, if you want to know who your true friends are, they're the ones who tell you the hard truth. People who are against you are just going to tell you how great you are. And how dangerous it is for us when the people around us are just people who, who uh, give us profound kisses but who don't actually tell us the hard truth. He says the end of things is better than the beginning of things. Why is that? Because when something comes to an end, you see how it all fits together. I was on vacation a month ago and we did a puzzle on vacation. At the beginning of the puzzle, it was all scattered. You had no idea how it fit together, but in the end, you could see the full picture. And some of you are in this season in your life right now. You have no idea what's going on. You have no idea how it fits together. Some of you have been in this kind of season and now you're in this kind of season. And you can say, yeah, the end of things is better than the beginning. Yes, God is at work in ways I didn't see and understand here, but I now see and understand. And finally, Solomon says, patience is better than pride. Pride, that 
vice or flaw or sin that the scriptures say is the root of everything else. Solomon says anger, it resides, it lodges in the heart of fools. And often anger is just a symptom of a greater problem. My friend Jason once told me that boredom is the lowest form of anger. And some of you are angry, but the problem isn't the anger that's lodged in your heart. The problem is the source and the reason for that anger. The last thing that Solomon says in this section about wisdom, this better way of life, is he says, beware of thinking that the former days were better than these days. He's kind of speaking against nostalgia. And we all get nostalgia. I even have a nostalgia app on my phone. It's called TimeHop. It's a lovely little app, and I see pictures of my kids when they were younger. But here's the thing. If you've ever said, man, I wish we could go back to that, is what nostalgia does is it sanitizes your memory. And it removes all the hard things and only leaves the good things. We have problems with nostalgia on individual levels and we have problems with nostalgia on cultural levels. We opine for good old days, which might be good for us, but they weren't good for others. You say, man, I wish we could go back to those days. Well, that might be because it was good for your gender, but it wasn't good for somebody of another gender might be good for somebody of your race, but it's not good for somebody of another race. It might have been good in those things you remember, but you forgot all those hard things that actually made those good things gifts and moments of joy. So Solomon says, hey, don't wish for the good old days. These are the good old days. And then he says something interesting. After saying that wisdom shows us the better path, Solomon then says, wisdom has limits. Wisdom has limits. And what's interesting about what comes next from Solomon is that this is the guy who has more wisdom than anyone on earth. And when the person who has the most wisdom tells you about the limits of wisdom, I think it's wise to listen. And so beginning in verse 13, this is what Solomon says. He says, consider the work of God. Who can make straight what God has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful. And the day of adversity, consider God has made the one as well as the other so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. Solomon says, in my vain life, I have seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness. And there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. Be not overly righteous, Solomon says, and do not make yourself too wise. For why should you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? It is good that you should take hold of this, and from that withhold not your hand. For the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. Wisdom gives strength to the wise man more than ten rulers who are in a city. Solomon says, surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Do not take to heart all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. If there is ever a verse in the Bible to give you direction on how to use social media, this is your verse. 
Do not take to heart all the things that people say. Lest you, I don't think any of you have servants, but lest you hear somebody cursing you because your heart knows how many times you have cursed others. The book of Ecclesiastes falls in a section of the Bible known as the wisdom books. These five books, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Songs, or Song of Solomon, depending on your translation. And and in these five books, there's various perspectives on ancient Hebrew wisdom. And Solomon, in these nine or ten verses I just read you, is pushing back on the way most people in his day, worshipers of God and not worshipers of God, saw the world. If you lived in this day, 95, 98% of you would have seen the world this way. That if you're good, if you're a good person, you're going to be blessed. And if you're a bad person, you're going to be cursed. Or the opposite, if you're experiencing some sort of hardship or adversity or curse, well, then that means you did something wrong. And if you're experiencing some sort of blessing, you must have done something good. It's, it's kind of like an ancient idea of, of karma, you know? And, and what Solomon is saying is, you may believe this, but here's what I've seen. In verse 15, he says, there's a righteous man who does everything right and dies. And there's an evil man who goes on living. You know this from your life experience. I do everything right. I I do everything that I'm supposed to do and stuff still happens to me. And they do everything wrong. They're terrible people. And they have it all. Like you've thought this. I know we're in church and you think I shouldn't say this, but you've thought this. Where's the payoff, you say? Where's the bonus? And Solomon says, that's not how life works. Wisdom has limits. And instead of embracing that mindset, he calls us to see and consider. Twice in this passage, he uses the word consider, which can be translated, which which translated consider, which comes from the Hebrew word ra'ah which means to see or to examine in order to evaluate. It appears 47 times in Ecclesiastes. It is the most common word in the book. And so Solomon says, hey, you might be tempted to see their badness and wonder why they're being blessed and see these people's goodness and wonder why they're experiencing adversity. But I'm here to ask you and invite you and call you to ra'ah, to consider, to examine and evaluate what is actually happening here. And to acknowledge who can make straight what God has made crooked. To consider God both in prosperity and in adversity. And in that place, Solomon says, I I want you to not be overly righteous. And some of you go, whew, I'm off the hook. I don't have to give up that bad habit over there. I don't have to stop doing that. I'm not going to be overly righteous, Scott. No, that's not what he's talking about. He's calling us to balance. And on one hand, the extreme he describes is overly righteous. It is a self-righteousness. And the other side is a foolishness and a lack of restraint. And I I came up with a good definition of self-righteous this week. I'm sure it was inspired by somebody. But here's how I'm defining self-righteous. Self-righteousness is defining your goodness by the bad things you don't do.
Self-righteousness is defining your righteousness, your goodness, not by the things you do, not by the things you don't do that you should do, but by the bad things that you don't do and against the, the bad people who do those things. And the reason why I was able to write such a good definition of self-righteousness is because I am a recovering self-righteous jerk. (laughs) I am. There's a period in my past where I was completely self-righteous. And I was extremely judgy. And my wife met me after this period. And my friends who knew me in this period told her, A, you would have never married that version of Scott. B, you would have never dated that version of Scott. And C, you probably wouldn't even have been friends with that version of Scott. I've found, because everything lasts forever now, I've found copies of things that I wrote Sermons and lessons I delivered in that period. And I cringe. Because I was so focused on the bad things that I wasn't doing. And the bad things that others were doing. And I was using that to prop up my own insecure identity and ego. And I had deceived myself into thinking that God loved me more. And God loved them less because of the bad things I didn't do and the bad things they did. Which, if you've lost me for a second, is not the teaching of this book. You may have encountered that in your experience at church, but that's not the teaching of this book. That's self-righteousness. That's legalism. That's a perverted version of the gospel. That's spiritual arrogance. And that is no place in this church or in God's kingdom. And I say I'm recovering because if you've ever had a sin that beset you before, you know that you are never not capable of that. And so I have to remain vigilant in my own life. And so Solomon's words this week to me, they brought me back to those memories and they convicted me and reminded me to be vigilant once again. What what Solomon is saying here, what I'm saying, is that wisdom has its limits because none of us are actually righteous. In Paul's words, in Romans 3, he says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. You're surrounded by recovering blank blanks. You're listening to a recovering self-righteous jerk. We have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And the only reason we can sing and give thanks to God is because he gave us his grace as a gift because Jesus died to redeem us. And so Solomon is saying, hey, wisdom is great. It will guide you down a, a good and better path, but it has limits. It can't save you and it can't fix your brokenness which is where Solomon goes next. Point number three, apart from grace, none of us are wise and none of us are good. And Solomon is about to testify to this 
in a section where he gets really personal. The final section of Ecclesiastes 7 is, is very autobiographical. In verse 23, he says, All of this I've shared with you, I've tested by wisdom. I said, I will be wise, but it was far from me. That which has been far off and deep, very deep, who can find it out? In verse 25, he says, I turned my heart to know and to search out and to seek wisdom in the scheme of things and to know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness that is madness. It's like, I'm going to go explore what it looks like to be foolish. I'm going to go experience that. And he said, and I find something more bitter than death. The woman whose heart is snares and nets and whose hands are fetters. He who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. Behold, this is what I found, says the preacher, while adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things, which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I have not found. That's how he played you two earlier. One man among a thousand I found, but a woman among all these I have not found. See, this alone I have found. God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. What Solomon does here is he holds a mirror up to himself. Or maybe God gives him a mirror to look at himself. And it's a really hard look. Some of you are often looking in the mirror because of body image issues and parental and societal influence. But some of you don't look in the mirror because you don't want to face the truth of who you are. And Solomon is looking the mirror dead straight. And he's admitting who he is. In verse 20, he says, Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. None of us are righteous. None of us are good. Solomon says, I turned in my heart to know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness. This is meant. He says, I turned away from wisdom and I went down a foolish path. And Solomon says, God made us upright, but we have sought out many schemes. And Solomon's primary scheme that he's facing at this point in his life is his relationship with women. That's one of the reasons he speaks so ill of women in this text. It's the reason why he says, one man among a thousand I found, but a woman among those I have not found. It's the reason that he personifies sin as a woman, because that was his experience. In 1 Kings 11, we see this. It says, now King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women. From the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, you shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you. For surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. But Solomon clung to these in love. He had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 concubines. It's 1,000 for those of you who aren't good at math. And his wives turned away his heart. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of his father, David. Now in this moment, because you have a crooked heart, your temptation is to judge Solomon for his thousand women. That's the problem of the human heart. It projects the problem out there. 
when a psalmist is trying to tell us the problem isn't out there, the problem is in here. G.K. Chesterton in the early 20th century wrote a response to an article in a British newspaper. The article was titled, What's Wrong with the World? Chesterton wrote a letter to the editor that said, Dear Editor, regarding your article, I am. I'm the problem with the world. And as long as you continue to dilute yourself in thinking that the problem with the world is out there, the problem with the world is those people who don't do those things or who do do those things, you will miss the point. What Solomon is trying to tell us, it's great to be wise and it's great to have it all, but none of it will fix the hole in here. The problem isn't out there. The problem is in here. And that's why as I read this passage, I feel like what Solomon does is he's coming back home from a life of wandering and pursuing all the wrong things. It reminded me of a story in the New Testament that Jesus tells about a young man who was the son of a wealthy father too, who went out and pursued all that wealth could provide and who discovered the emptiness of it. Some of you may be experiencing that thing. That's why you're here today. Because you feel empty. Because you've pursued and pursued and pursued and come back empty. This son finally comes to his senses and while he's traveling home, he prepares a speech to deliver to his father. But when he arrives, he has a very different experience. He gives his speech and in the message translation, Eugene Peterson renders the text this way. He says, but the father wasn't listening. He was calling to the servant saying, quick, bring a clean set of clothes and dress him. Put the family ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Then get a grain fed heifer and roast it. We're going to feast. We're going to have a wonderful time. My son is here, given up for dead and now alive, given up for lost and now found. If you only hear one thing from me today, I want you to hear this. You can go home. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter the mistakes you've made, the things you shouldn't have done that you did, the things that you should have done but didn't, the things that you did that you wish you could take back, the opportunities that you missed that you can't get back. The message that Solomon is telling us is the message that Jesus came to preach. You can come home. You don't need a speech. You don't need to clean yourself up. You don't need to get everything in line. You can just say, I was going the wrong way. And now I'm going home. And that opportunity is available today. I've got a couple next steps I want to encourage you with this morning. I want to encourage you to set aside some time this week to reflect on your life and where you've been lacking wisdom. I want to encourage you to look in the mirror, a proverbial one, and go, man, where have I been missing it? Once you get some clarity around that, I I want to encourage you, number two, to, to pick a verse of wisdom from this chapter and memorize it. And allow God to use that to shape your heart. 
It's not in this chapter, but one of the verses that I've been praying as I've been studying Ecclesiastes is James 1.5, which says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and I'll be given to him. If you want to become wise, that is a prayer that God loves to answer. Memorize something that makes that aligned with your heart. Number three, I want to encourage you to confess your need to be saved from your own schemes and sins. Some of us get caught up in this myth that uh, in the church, once I become a follower of Jesus, that's the only kind of confession I ever need. If you can't remember the last time you confessed, it's been too long. If the people who are around you, who you live with and are closest to, can't remember the last time you said the words, I was wrong, it's been too long. If you can't remember the last time God broke your heart for your own sin, it's been too long. And then finally, number four, thank God for welcoming you home. Thank God that this is not a a self-help, self-improvement, self-betterment, pick-yourself-up gospel. This is a gospel of a homecoming. Yes, wisdom shows us a better way, but Jesus, he shows us and invites us home. Would you pray with me? Thank you for listening to the audio from Cornerstone Church in Prescott, Arizona. For more information... Visit us online at www.prescottcornerstone.com.